I have two sons, two sons, two sons, and terror in my head. Small feet play safely on the lawn. Small hearts are safe in bed. Bird voices, fragile bird-like bones, small hands that grasp my hands. I bore my sons before the bomb. Once I made plans. From When They Grow Up by Joy Davidman I am Patty Callahan, and this is Behind the Scenes of Becoming Mrs. Lewis, an in-depth exploration into the improbable love story of Joy Davidman and C.S. Lewis. You'll hear the stories behind the stories of the best-selling novel Becoming Mrs. Lewis, along with interviews from some of the foremost experts on their lives and love. When we first got to the kilns, I was still in the state where I thought that English people ought to be wearing armor and riding horses and jousting every now and again, that sort of thing. And of course, when I was going to be meeting this man who, who, who was a personal friend of Aslan the Great Lion and of High King Peter of Narnia and the rest, I kind of imagined him to be this stalwart, knightly character, probably riding a white charger and wearing silver armor and carrying a sword because he was nothing of the sort. Episode 1, What About the Children? Part 1 with Douglas Gresham. Today is Part 1 of 2, where I'll be talking to Joy's son and C.S. Lewis's stepson, Douglas Gresham. Douglas is an American-British stage and voiceover actor, biographer, film producer, and executive record producer. He's written an autobiography titled Lenten Lands, which chronicles his early life. And he also penned a book titled Jack's Life about his stepfather, C.S. Lewis. A documentary is in the works about Douglas's life, and we're thrilled that he's here to talk to us about one of my favorite subjects, his mother, the beautiful and talented Joy Davidman and his stepfather, C.S. Lewis. When Douglas was a young boy in New York, he read The Lion, The Witch, and The Wardrobe, not knowing that one day he'd move to England and the author would become his stepfather and one of the most influential men in his life. I am so grateful to have Douglas join us today as we talk about his childhood, meeting C.S. Lewis for the first time, and life with his brilliant mother before cancer. So Douglas, from the moment your mother received the first letter from Jack, a decade passed until her early and untimely death at 45 years old in 1960. You were with her during this decade of intense transformation and change. So let's talk about your experience of it all. You were quite young in 1950, five years old, I think, when your mother first started corresponding with Lewis. So I know memories are shadowy at best, but everywhere I go, every lecture I give about your brilliant and fiery mother, one of the very first questions I'm asked about you and your brother is, what about the children? Well, my earliest memory that I can possibly remember at all is my father changing my nappy, and I must have been about two and a half or three years old at the time. Why he was doing it, I have absolutely no idea. He came back from the Spanish Civil War, of course, so he'd seen all sorts of horrible things over there before he had to deal with child's diapers and things. (laughs) Well, I've spent years with your mother in a quite literal sense, as I've been reading her words and writing about her. 
And when I think of her, I think of the word brave. We just heard about your father, but I want to hear your first memory of her or even an impression of your mother when you were growing up, a memory that defines how you feel about her. Well, I think the only one that comes to mind immediately was uh, one time when I was in the house alone, uh, probably hiding from my brother. I was only very small at the time. And I suddenly felt that my mother needed a fly swatter. I have no idea why I felt that, but I I thought, well, she needs a fly swatter. And she was out in the garden, in the vegetable garden, because she used to grow most of our own food, most of our own vegetables and things in those days. So I waddled out uh, into the garden carrying a fly swatter. And my mother looked up and saw me coming and said, so, Doug, what what are you doing out here? And I said, well, I thought you might need a fly swatter. And she was completely gobsmacked because a few seconds earlier, she had said to herself, I wish I had a fly swatter. Wow, that is an amazing memory. That must have left a deep impression. We always did have some kind of slight telepathic link, I think. I suppose being close in terms of (laughs) parent and child probably has a lot to do with that. But... um, My brother was never close to any human being, as far as I can remember. So I guess it was down to me to be um, my mother's little boy, in a sense. Well, tell me a little bit about that, about what it was like and what it felt like as a child. You didn't understand, of course. So the visceral feeling of your brother and that dynamic must have been confusing for you. It started off being confusing because I, I loved him to bits when I was little. And he used to return that by smacking me over the head with something, usually... It turned out later, of course, that he was a paranoid schizophrenic, but um, I had no idea why he hated me. And it was, that was, that was kind of tough. You know, I was a little boy and I didn't know much about what was going on in the world or anything about psychology or psychiatry or anything like that. So it was kind of hard to take. But in the end, I soon got to the stage where I just, um, if my mother wasn't around and my dad wasn't around, I just stayed hidden, stayed out of his, out of his reach anyway. I used to play a lot in the woods and the fields and the forests around our home in upstate New York. And it was a very beautiful place. I mean, it still is probably. I haven't been there for many years now. But it was a lovely place. And, and there were, in those days, there were still wild animals in the pine forests around the place. You never knew what you were going to run into. Down in the creek, there were snapping turtles and things like that. So it was a lovely environment for a small boy, particularly a small boy of adventurous nature like myself at the time. I remember on one occasion, um, I had escaped into the, into the woods hiding from my brother. And I came across a clearing, a little sort of natural clearing in the forest. And there was a little tiny bear cub playing in there. I waddled over to the bear club. I must have been about five at the time, I suppose. And uh, we played together, you know, wrestling and so on. I thought it was great until there was a sudden roar and this great monster came flying out of the trees. And I found out that a five-year-old can climb a tree at an awfully fast rate if there's something chasing him. I wound up at the top of the tree waiting for quite a long time until they'd been gone for quite a long time before I came down. But I had the sense never to tell my dad or my mother about that because had I done so, they would have forbidden me to go up there alone ever ever after. That almost defines innocence. You alone in a forest with a bear and not being frightened until the mama showed up. I do remember you once told me about a memory you have with your brother David when you were quite afraid. You were in a creek, I believe? Well, it wasn't a creek. It was a, it was a swimming hole or a weird little pond thing. And it was the local swimming hole for kids to go and enjoy themselves in during the right time of year. So I think my mother and, and my dad both probably took us up there and um, just said, you know, there's, there's a swimming hole. Get in and have some fun. Because I hadn't got a clue what to do in water, but I paddled around. But the last memory I have, or the only real memory that I have... Okay, so all of a sudden... Um, I don't know where my father and mother had got to, but they weren't within range, obviously. I found myself on the bottom of, and this is what I remember completely and clearly, on the bottom of this pond in the mud, 
looking upwards, and all I could see was kind of a, a, a yellowy color in the water and, and bits and pieces of stuff floating around, and the fact that my brother was standing on my chest. And I thought to myself, if I don't do something fairly quickly, I'm probably going to die here. So I managed to manipulate my, my legs behind him and hurled him away from me with my legs and then ran out of the pond and ran away. And that left me with a fear of water that it took me many, many years to get rid of. By the way, this whole episode will probably be explored in some detail in the documentary film that Robert's making about me, but it's called An Honest Life. That's the name of it. And it doesn't mean I've led an honest life because I haven't always been honest, but it does mean that this life is being demonstrated or shown in the documentary in an honest way. However, to get back to the swimming hole, the biggest problem I suffered from that was that I was terrified of water from that point on for a very, very long time. And uh, that, more than anything, I think I, I resent of the whole in, uh, incident. But it also taught me right back then, when I was very small, that if I didn't stay clear of my brother when there was nobody around, I was going to find myself in trouble. Which leads me to think about you at eight years old when you boarded a ship to move to England over the biggest water that there is. I mean, how did that feel? Did you even begin to understand the finality of it and what was happening at eight years old? Well, it starts a bit earlier than that. It, the whole memory sequence starts back when Rene joined us at Statsburg, just outside Statsburg. And the thing that I most noticed about that was for the first time in my life, there was a little girl in my life. That was Rosemary. And she's a, uh, let me get this right, She's a first cousin stepsister once removed or something like that. <laughs> to have a little girl in the house all of a sudden was something I had never encountered before. To begin with, I didn't know quite what to make of her. But she's a very sweet person. She was a very sweet little girl, and she's still a very sweet person today. And I realized that if my brother started to, to attack them, him, her and her, her brother was there too, that I would have to do something, and I became their defender. I was the person who protected them from David, quite often at my own cost. But I, I enjoyed their company enormously, and still do for that matter. I haven't seen Bob for years and years and years, but I've seen Rosemary every now and again. So it's kind of interesting that this is the first little girl I had ever associated with in any way, and my immediate reaction to the situation was to protect her. And I'm very, I'm not proud of it exactly, but I'm very glad that I was like that. I'm very glad that I still am like that. I'm allergic to bullies, I suppose, as a result of probably of partly my brother's influences. But they joined us, and uh, Renee joined us, and of course my mother then disappeared to England on her first visit when she first met C.S. Lewis and several other people of great note, Tolkien for one, in Oxford at that time. And we were alone in the house, my brother and myself with my father and René. And my father, of course, had a an affair with René, which started there and didn't end until his death, actually, because they did get married afterwards. But getting back to the ship and the, and the water, I didn't relate to the water with fear unless I was in it. And we had a big bathtub at Statsburg, and we often used to have baths. My brother and myself had baths in it together. If my mother was there, I was safe. If she wasn't, I got out of the bath really very quickly. But being on top of the water in a big ship, I didn't see anything wrong with that at all. I had no fear of the, of the ocean, even though I spent my, my eighth birthday in a howling gale in the North Atlantic on this ship, and I just stood at the rail clutching on and holding on for dear life, loving every minute of it. All my mother could afford to give me for a present for my birthday on that occasion was a little toy called a dinky toy in England, which is about two and a half inches long replica of some race car or something. And when the storm was at its worst, I would go downstairs into the corridors, which led between the cabins, and let this little car go when my end of the ship was up high, and it would sort of hurtle zigzagging all the way down to the other end of the corridor. And then, of course, the ship would beat up the other way, and it would come hurtling back again. 
And the poor um, grown-ups who saw this happening would stop and watch for a couple of seconds and then make gulping noises and disappear as fast as possible. It wasn't being on the water that worried me. It was being in the water. As I say, that took a lot of time to get over. Did you at that age even understand the finality of what was happening? That you were boarding the ship and you were moving to England? That your house in Statsburg was gone? The big white farmhouse with the broad porches and your whole childhood essentially was gone? Can an eight-year-old even understand the finality of that and what that meant? As far as I was concerned, all of that was immaterial. I was going on an adventure. I was going on, first of all, on a ship in the ocean. This was huge to start with. Not many kids I knew, if any, had ever been on a ship in the, in the ocean. And I was going to England where people rode around on horses on, and wearing silver armor and carrying swords and stuff. I was going over there to, to see an entirely different world. And I found that enormously exciting. I was a bit disappointed when we sort of pulled up into Liverpool, <laughs> which was dim, dark, dreary, smoggy and dirty in those days. We moored up there and then we took a long train trip to London and that was all grim and darkness and pretty grimy, actually. It just wasn't very clean. And eventually got to London and moved into this little tiny apartment, which I actually grew to like quite a lot. There was Hampstead Heath nearby, which was a beautiful park in those days, sort of unadulterated. I think it probably still is. I haven't been there for many years. It is a lovely place. But I also found uh, a whole, uh, I ran into, I think it was the North London Kite Club there one time. We were flying these most beautiful kites, and I was absolutely fascinated by them. And I'd wandered off to look at them, having got permission from my mother. And she said, but don't be late coming back to where we are here in the park. And of course, I got lost. And <laughs> I was slapped when I got back because she was so terrified that something awful had happened to me and she'd rang the police and all that sort of thing. But all it was was I'd been fascinated by these kites and was talking to the guys who were, who were flying them. Hampstead Heath itself has some good memories for me. I did get to play on the bombed sites. I don't know if you... You're probably actually not old enough to know about this, but London was pretty badly bombed during the Second World War and many of the sites were still there where the bombed rubble was still in heaps, where houses had been destroyed. They'd put fences around it till they could get to it. And there were signs up saying, you know, no entry, bomb site, and so forth. And every now and again, in the distance in London at that time, you might hear the distant thud, or crumping sound of a child getting in the wrong place at the wrong time and doing the wrong thing with an unexploded bomb and blowing himself to pieces, which is why we were never we were forbidden to be there, but we played on the, in, in bomb sites anyway. Fortunately, I never found a bomb to blow me up. I mean, it was a different world that we lived in back then, different attitudes, different ideas and so forth. And, and looking back, playing on the bomb sites was probably the most fun I had in London. When I was doing my research for this book, I spent hours wandering around Hampstead Heath. And I had the same feeling you did, you know, that it was a lovely place and that the past was kind of right underneath it. And I saw that your mom wrote about the bombed out spaces and how they looked and how you could see even the Roman walls underneath and that that history had been exposed a little bit by the bombs. The rubble of history was exposed. I'm not quite sure much else was. I think sometimes, yes, there were the remains of ancient villas and so forth that would appear as they dug out the bombed uh, sites. First of all, of course, they would go in with bomb detectors and things to try and make sure there was no explosives left in there. But as far as we were concerned, it was just a great place to play. You know, I'm the king of the castle and all kinds of wild games like that. And I, I grew up for, I think it was two or three years there. And then you moved to Oxford. And you describe that um, in your book, Lenten Land. You talk about moving there and about meeting the man who would become your stepfather. 
So I want you to tell us about your first and most vivid memory of Oxford and meeting C.S. Lewis. Once you took the train into Oxford, did your memories of that landscape shift a bit? Not really. Look, train tracks in England are always dull. They're horrible. But, but I, I mean, the old steam trains I enjoyed very much. I didn't, don't like the modern ones very much, I must confess. But riding in a railway train is not my, my kind of fun, really. But getting there was a different thing altogether. When we first got to the kilns, I was still in the state where I thought that English people ought to be wearing armour and riding horses and jousting every now and again, that sort of thing. And, of course, when I was going to be meeting this man who, who, who was a personal friend of Aslan the Great Lion and of High King Peter of Narnia and the rest, I kind of imagined him to be this stalwart, knightly character, probably riding a white charger and wearing silver armour and carrying a sword. And of course, he was nothing of the sort. He was a stooped, balding, professorial-looking gentleman with long, nicotine-stained fingers and nicotine-stained teeth. And he looked a complete mess, actually. He was, he was probably the scruffiest man I've ever met, wearing an old, worn-out tweed jacket with the elbows out of it and, and, and tears here and there. And, and he had uh, his slippers. He never put them on properly. He just sort of stepped onto them and squashed them and put his toes in the toe part and walked around like that. He was not, I suppose, the most prepossessing character to look at the world has ever seen. But within about five minutes of meeting him, his enormous sense of humour and sense of fun quickly eradicated any discrepancies I might have had about him. He was a man you couldn't be with for more than five or ten minutes without roaring with laughter. He was full of humour, full of joy, and, and a great guy to be with. So I soon grew to like him very much indeed. I had one problem, though, with the kilns itself, the, the house. I was put into what had been many years before Warney's bedroom, and it was sort of disused at the time. So I was put down there, and it was the coldest room I think I'd ever been in at that stage. But they gave me a hot water bottle, and I was sort of snuggle into the hot water bottle in bed. The problem was that late at night, probably around midnight, and then again before dawn in the morning in the darkness of a winter's day, there would be a hammering, clamoring, banging sound in the wall of the room. And having read, sort of having had read to me various ghost stories and told ghost stories, I was quite convinced that this was some demonic influence out to get me. It was a clattering, roaring, banging sound. It was very loud and very, very frightening. So I would just snuggle under my bed and hold things into my ears until it went away. But it was interesting because in my first visit there, I had the feeling that this was something I should just put up with and not tell anybody about, just, just ignore it and, and it'll go away eventually, as it was as if it was some kind of rite of passage. In order to have the right to be in the kilns, I had to put up with this clamoring row in the mornings and late at night. It wasn't until many years later that I, was, I actually confessed to that. And I was told that it was airlocks in the cast iron pipes within the brickwork that were banging backwards and forwards with the, with the force of the airlocks, vibrating them. That's all it was. But for a little boy of, what, nine years old, I suppose, or eight years old, I suppose it was at the time. Yeah, eight years old. It was terrifying. So that was the only thing I, I had. But, but the beauty of the kilns, the gardens, the woods and everything, the old kilns themselves, for example, all of that was such a magical place that I realized that, that, you know, it was perhaps these banging noises were just the dues I had to pay to be there. Well, that's quite the imagination. And I guess it rings true that you didn't tell your mother as you never told her about Davy. So you keep these things to yourself. So maybe you see yourself almost becoming a man in these incidents that you must bear and carry alone. Well, I never felt that my, to tell my brother would hurt him, and I didn't want to hurt him. I had no intention ever of hurting him. In fact, when he died eventually, having been a menace to me all his life, I wept for him. He was my brother. I loved him, even though he was a horror. That horrible stuff wasn't his fault, of course. 
And I did realize that later in life. I realized that what was wrong with him was something he couldn't really help. There was no way it was, it was him who was doing it. It was, it was some infection, some demon, some something that had got inside him. And it did turn out to be paranoid schizophrenia. It was diagnosed by a, a leading Manhattan psychiatrist with whom he went to stay, stay in, in New York for a while. That was our, our uncle. That's Joy's brother. So your Uncle Howard was the man who diagnosed your brother as being a paranoid schizophrenic. And that must have been frightening to learn. But all through childhood, you must have known that something was amiss. Um, you tried to stay away from him. You were frightened of him. But then the two of you went away together when you were 9 and 10 years old. Your mother chose a school in Surrey for you to attend together. And I went off to prep school, which is preparatory school, um, which was supposed to get you ready for the public school, which is, in your terminology, a private school. It gets very confusing. But in any case, I went off to school in a place in Surrey. It was a very, very bad experience to start with. I had an American accent in the 19, early 1950s. And in the 1950s, it was not fashionable or even acceptable to have an American accent because the American troops were still all over England. They were overdressed, overpaid, and over here. Americans were not popular. They were bragging about how they'd won the Second World War, completely forgetting, apparently, to the English people, that the English had been involved in that war and, in fact, had kept it going long before the U.S. decided to get in, into it themselves. So there was quite a lot of animosity, and I began to be quite badly bullied by some kids there. And it wasn't until I smashed a tuck box, as we used to call them, across somebody's face that they realized that I wasn't going to take it anymore. I'd had enough. And they stopped bullying me. And I just gained at that time and sort of allergy to bullies and still have it. Um, I've got myself into trouble a few times by tackling bullies. Not something I regret, mind you, because I learned to fight very early from a very young age because of my, my brother's assaults on me. But I can, and I can get people badly hurt if I'm not very careful. But sometimes something snaps and I just, just let go. Mind you, I'm getting a bit old for it now, being 73. No, I can still cope with it, I think. Douglas, <laughs> I am not worried about you. Did school get better as time wore on? Did you become adapted to the place and ways of England at all? No, I don't think I ever enjoyed the classes. I was a lousy student. I enjoyed the things I was interested in. I mean, some things I got interested in and some things I didn't. But the problem was it wasn't a very good school. It was a school living on its past reputation at the time I was there, I think. And although the, the headmaster was a very nice man, the new headmaster particularly, who was the son of the old headmaster, very nice man and probably a good teacher too, the staff we got there weren't particularly on the top line, I don't think. And the school, I think, was going downhill through lack of money. But many schools were in those days. But in any case, I left that school barely able to write. And I was, what, um, 13 years old at that time. I'd been in that school for years and never learned how to write properly. So there were, there were discrepancies and things that I didn't like about it. And, and, and I was also incredibly mischievous, I guess. I was always the adventurer. And uh, I had a little gang of three people. <laughs> we used to get up to all kind of mischief. Every gang that, that forms in a school has its own motto. Ours was, no, don't get caught. Doesn't matter what we did, but as long as we didn't get caught, that was our, our byline, we mustn't get caught. And we never did, actually. <laughs> but uh, we'd get up to all kinds of mischief. We'd climb out of the windows on the top floor, which is four floors up, down the drain pipes and off to have adventures in the middle of the night and all sorts of things like that. But we never, ever got caught. Well, there you go. That proves that mottos might actually determine our course. But meanwhile, you're at school when your mother is diagnosed with cancer. You've written about this extensively and beautifully, and you've said, I was a blithe and unaffected boy when I passed over the hospital portal. 
In the next episode, we'll talk about this time in your life with C.S. Lewis and Warney and Davey. So as we end this episode, I just want to say I am so grateful to you, Doug, for coming to share your life with us. Join us for the next episode where we will talk to Douglas again about the time in his life when his mother was diagnosed with cancer, and we'll look into the years that he lived alone with C.S. Lewis and his brother Warney at the Kilns. Make sure to subscribe to Behind the Scenes of Becoming Mrs. Lewis wherever you get your podcasts. You can find the novel and audiobook wherever books are sold, published by HarperCollins' Thomas Nelson. You've been listening to the Behind the Scenes of Becoming Mrs. Lewis podcast, copyright 2019 by Thomas Nelson, based on the book Becoming Mrs. Lewis, The Improbable Love Story of Joy Davidman and C.S. Lewis, copyright 2018 by Thomas Nelson. No portion of this recording may be used without the express written consent of the publisher. For more information on the people and stories featured in this episode, please visit becomingmrslewispodcast.com. This program was engineered by Sarah Voorhees Wendell at Kingswood Studios in Nashville, Tennessee, and produced by Jolene Bartow and Gabe Wicks. Mm